Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My guests today are well known within the San Francisco community as the owners of Stagecoach Greens, San Francisco only outdoor mini golf venue. They are philanthropists for the foster care community and pretty much all around badass humans. So please give a warm, sarcastic welcome to Jan and Esther Stearns. Thank you. Thank you. That was very. very good. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Uh, I like I said, I really appreciate you taking time out to talk with me, and uh, I have so many questions, and I'm very intrigued in your participation in the foster care community, the gay community, and you know, Stagecoach Greens, which I'm a huge fan of and have been to many times. Although I never get the hole into the dragon's mouth to win that last ticket. Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, that's tricky. That's a goal. I'll just have to keep coming back and practice and practice. One of our kids did it once. Yeah. Yeah. So, Esther, you lived in San Francisco. You moved from the East Coast, and and you moved to San Francisco in '81, correct? And then Jan moved in '86. Correct. Okay. And I moved from the East Coast in 87, so I kind of was here for that time of, you know, the 80s. Um, and then you both met in 92. That's correct. Okay. I just want to make sure the internet was correct on these figures. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, if you're willing to share how you met and, you know, because here you are, however many years later into mm-hmm. these ventures, and uh, I'm just intrigued to know how you met. Well, um, so as you say, I moved here in 81 and Jan in 86. I worked at Schwab in the early days. And um, I was also in, we were involved in, we were both involved in a community in Marin, in uh, spiritual uh, meditation, things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's how we met. We met at a, through one of uh, those classes and uh, I had, okay, I don't, I'm not a Buddhist, okay, and I'm not really that well versed in Buddhism, but I'm going to give this a shot because I was told this by a Buddhist friend. I had a Shakti when we met. I saw our lives together. I did not see all the way to the miniature golf course. (laughs) Um, But I I had a vision of, as soon as I met, the minute I laid eyes on Jan, I had a vision of our lives together. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I did not tell her about it for a while. Right, right. I just sat with that. (laughs) That must have been pretty intense, you know, to have that, that vision and not be able to share that at the same time, you know. Yes, I had to. I had to go in steps because it would have. Right? It would have. That was smart to wait to tell me. Because yeah. Jan would have been like, "What?" <laughs> what? Yeah. Sounds weird. Yes. Although I was obviously really attracted to Esther in the first time I met her yeah. as well, and uh, now we've been together thirty years. Wow! Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you. Four kids and a yep. lot of adventures. Right. Well, that's pretty amazing, and it's always inspiring to see couples that have been together for a long time. And you know, people always ask you, "What's the secret?" So I'm going to ask you, "What's the secret?" Well, Jen is very forgiving. <laughs> I will say that, really, honestly, you are. Jen is a very forgiving soul who uh, always uh, come. And Jen's very forgiving, and I'm very into connection. So no matter what happens. I reach out and make sure we have a connection and Jan, you know, helps us move on from, because we've had, you know, as all the things people have in 30 years, lots of things have happened. Yeah. And uh, I would say that's. And I, I agree with that. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I would say underneath that, we have a strong connection that I think we both try to keep in mind and, you know, when things have gotten bumpy, it's like, well, we have a strong connection, so we can we can work it out. We can talk it through. We can get help if we need to. We can take a breath. We can talk to friends, whatever, to, um, and give our, each other the space and the time to sort it out. And, and underneath that, really 
know that we love each other very much and there's a really strong connection. Yeah. Some of what the connection is built on now that I think of it is shared values and a goal. We have always set, we've always sought to, and we'll talk about that when we talk about braid, but we've kind of got a mission for why we're together. Mm. And, um, you know, we have tried to make that important when things are hard. We remember we have a reason we're together. Right. Yeah. And when you first initially met as well, I guess you would kind of go back to that, especially if you had that vision of, you know, being together, then I'm sure that kind of anchors, you know, both of you as well. So, yeah. Yes. Yes, that's true. It does. I try to remember that. <laughs> so long not, ago. <laughs> it's not really in my hands. I just had a, you know. Right. <laughs> So June is Gay Pride Month, and I'm interested to hear about your coming out stories, if you're willing to share how that was for you and what insight you can share for the the generation that's kind of coming up. So I was 25 when I came out. Um, I completed college, and I was living in Los Angeles, so it was a long time ago. I'm 66. But I think that I would say the main reason I came out is... I got tired of lying, mm. tired of hiding. And uh, for me, it, it, it happened in a phone call to my mother. And she was, you know, she was actually upset at first, but pretty quickly came around and, um, you know, admitted that they saw the clues all along. Sure, right. Well, <laughs> right. Parents know. I mean, yeah, even yeah. if they want to deny that they knew, they know, right? Right, right yeah. exactly. So it really wasn't that much of a surprise. And it was a relief for me. You know, I got tired of those phone calls. Of, How are you? Fine. What's happening? Not much. You know, right. I'll talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, can you guys, so I was born in 56. So what year was it? 81? 81. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. About 1981. Okay. Um, and that was in LA, which. Yeah, it was in LA. And uh, not long after that, I moved to New York and mm-hmm. then in 86 to San Francisco. So it was a relief to not lie anymore and have things more out in the open and you know, it took a while for the family to kind of settle in and they did. And then, you know, my mother, uh, she never, I don't think she ever went to one of the parades, but she was certainly a peat flag waving, you know, on our side. It didn't take her long to, and I think she saw that I was happy and, you know, my father was, you know, also appreciative of, of that as well. Mm -hmm. I was starting to come into who I was really, meant to be and what was what was supposed to happen in my life yeah and the truth I think is very freeing right absolutely yeah it's yeah. like that weight kind of comes off of your shoulder once you verbalize that and especially family you know it's great that your family was accepting they were because that was you know in that time that the world you know really has changed a lot since then yeah well I was younger I was I'm Younger than Jam, but I was younger when I came out. Mm-hmm. So it was it was the early 1970s, um, and I was uh, 13. And I grew up in a suburb of Boston, so pretty. There was just all this emerging. You know, there was a lot going on mm-hmm. in, in Boston in the 1970s, which I couldn't really get to from the suburbs, but I could read about. Um, I went every weekend to the Boston Public Library, took the transit into the Boston Public Library and took out every book that had lesbian in that, you know, that I could find. When I was 13, a friend of mine said, well, I don't know if you're not sure whether you're gay, but I just need you to know I'm not. And I said, oh, I'm sure. I'm gay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At 13, she's pretty, you know, strong willed. (laughs) (laughs) There was no real uncertainty there. It wasn't as easy, you know, uh, it was hard. Um, instantly, all of my friends in high school dropped me. I mm. didn't have friends again until I went to college. And um, I wasn't harassed. It was a nice high school. So, you know, nobody bothered me, but nobody wanted to deal with me either. Mm. And 
for most of my life, I've dealt with both being gay, but or being a lesbian. I really identify as a lesbian. Being a lesbian, but also gender non-conforming issues. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, now that I don't work, I'm free to look the way I've always wanted to. And so I've always, I haven't been the, you know, the lesbian who fits in. Um, I've always been the lesbian who creates trouble uh, or, or <laughs> you know, makes everyone kind of uncomfortable. Sure. So, you know, it was, it was not an easy time. I've since talked to old friends from high school, heterosexual friends. And one of my friends said to me, she's a nice girl when she's a woman now, of course, but she said, you know, I wish you had told me what was going on. I could have been more of a friend to you. And I just, and I think she meant it very sincerely, Mm -hmm. but I also just wasn't a, I mean, there was no way to be honest with people. It was for a 13 year old or a 15 or 16 year old. It was very hard. Mm -hmm. So, so it it was not an easy story. Um, I got fired from my first job after college. um, And I was told you will never fit in uh, at this insurance company. And in retrospect, I think that was true. I would have never fit in right. at the insurance company, but I'm pretty sure it was in 1981. And I'm pretty sure it's because I, I was, because I'm a lesbian. And um, so coming to San Francisco and working for Schwab was a big deal for me. Uh, you know, there were other out uh, people. Schwab was a pretty accepting place in those days. It was right here. Um, And that really, uh, you know, but I spent 30 years in financial services. And, you know, there were ups and downs to that, too. I was uh, a bit of an outlier all the time for 30 years. So, you know, it was, uh, it's been an interesting road. Yeah, I mean, it must have been really difficult to reach out to you know, people you went to high school with or even co-workers to um, you yeah. know, get their support? I mean, overall, I was lucky to be at two companies that, you know, were very relative for the financial services industry that were really pretty accepting. But, you know, when you, I never really lost sort of the, this is what I think is so hard. I never really lost the scars of getting fired from that first job in the sense that I, you could never... I never, I think it's very hard for people like me or other groups too. I mean, I think this applies to other outlier groups in business. You're more protective than than other than than people who fit in need to be. So even if you don't need to be, you just can't help yourself. That's you don't know what you're going to encounter. And I really do think it gives you an edge that makes people uncomfortable. It doesn't help. Yeah. It, yeah. It's an added challenge. And, you know, work's already hard. Um, it's an added challenge. Yeah. So was there ever any point in your career that that lessened as far as that challenge? Or was it just always there? Good question. Certainly things got better in the world. And I got, I was pretty successful. And uh, I, I, you know, when you're, the boss, it's a little easier. Right. Um, people are nice to you because they have to be. Um, right. right. <laughs> and I, so I, yes, it definitely got easier. And then, you know, there were times like when we adopted our first son, the work, my company at that time, we were in San Diego by then, they had a big shower for us and everybody came, you know, when we got married and when it was legal, all sorts of people came from work. I mean, yes, it got a lot easier. But I think for people of my generation, it's hard to let go of the reserve and Mm -hmm. the carefulness that you developed when you were younger. Mm -hmm. You know, the world can change and you change somewhat with it, but there's always a part of you that's like, "Mm, I guess, you know, do you ever see that television show, Gentleman Jack? Yes. Yeah. I thought it was tremendously triggering Mm -hmm. for me. I enjoy, I tried to enjoy it, but truthfully, I found it terrifying mm. because I thought about how much risk she was living in. And, and so, you know, obviously my life wasn't like hers. It wasn't the 1800s, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's hard to let go of. Yeah. Is that yeah. true? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a small town in New York state and there definitely wasn't any mentor. I mean, I had a typing teacher and a gym teacher that I pretty was 
sure they were gay. I mean, the typing teacher was an outed bisexual, like she was married to a man. But, you know, there's all these rumors that, you know, she was bisexual. And, you know, in high school, I don't even I didn't even know what that meant, really. So, you know, not having anybody to go to or resources was difficult because, like you say about the reserve, you know, I was definitely reserved and didn't really, you know, college is usually the the springboard that most lesbians, gay people find themselves, you know. But, you know, until I moved out to California, I really didn't have that freedom and, you know, that's when I came out to my parents is when they, they moved out to California like a year after I did. And it was terrifying, even though I had an older sister that was gay and was out. She was in the military, so she had her own challenges with being gay in the military at that time. But my fear of coming out to my parents was that they were going to blame my sister for, <laughs> you know, influencing me and, you know, that they would look to that instead of, really who I was, you know, um, so, and, and of course, you know, it went fine, and, you know, they asked me, is this a stage, and I'm like, no, this is not a stage, and, you know, what about the boys that you, you know, dated, whatever, I'm like, that was a stage. So, yeah, it's interesting how everyone has their own story and, you know, based on the environment that they either grew up in or their family or, you know, like business, you know, there's just so many experiences that people have. And, you know, it breaks my heart when you hear stories of families disowning, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, and it's just... I mean, there's just no reason for it, and it's it's just heartbreaking, you know, and how a lot of these kids are end up on the streets, and you know their lives get even more difficult when you know when that happens. Yes, so, it's very very upsetting and hard. Yeah. So, in your mind, in your experience, how has the gay community and movement kind of changed? In San Francisco, I guess we could kind of narrow it down to that from the 80s, you know, because I remember going to the, you know, the gay pride parade and in the 80s. And, you know, that's when the AIDS epidemic was happening. And there was just a lot of focus around that happening. And, you know, the tragedy of that. I was at that time, I was before I met Esther, but I was living in San Francisco. And I was part of the uh, gay band that's uh, the San Francisco gay band and uh it was heartbreaking most not i think almost all of the men got sick with aids mm. and most of them died um it was a time of a lot of funerals and it was uh you know we saw and i saw personally you know young men getting sick and their families disowning them and not coming and um I mean, I remember this one mother who did come to be with her son and, you know, I was sat with her and just how heartbreaking. I mean, she was just, you know, sitting on the couch watching her son waste away and die. It was awful. And as part of the lesbian community, I remember very well having conversations, uh, you know, between the women's like we basically is like, well, we can't take care of them all. So we'll divide them up. Mm. And you take so and so, and I'll take so and so, and we'll do what we we can for these for our friends um, yeah. that were so sick. And the Castro just became such a hard place. I didn't live in the Castro at the time, but certainly was there a lot. It was very hard to be there to see you know young men that were old men, yeah, you know, o- overnight, yeah. Um, as far so that you know that's very vivid in in my mind. And then um, when I mentioned before, the you know the world really changed in front of me. Um, you know, Esther, when I met Esther, she wanted to have a family, and I had never really even considered that. That just wasn't a thing. Lesbians didn't have fa- didn't have children unless they were previously married, had a kid, and were divorced. Mm-hmm. That that was the path to having a family. But then, you know, women started you know with the turkey baster and artificial insemination <laughs> and. Right. stuff like that (laughs) the adoption opened up I mean when we adopted our our son um in 1999 
we were the second adoption in to be legalized with two you know two oh, women's wow. certificate in, in san diego county his adoption is an open adoption. His birth mother chose us. We're still in contact with her. That's you know, amazing. Now. And that just, when I, you know, first came out, that all of that was just not even imaginable. Right. Yeah. With gay marriage being legalized and yep, yep. yeah. Yeah. Our, we got ma officially married in 2008. So we were one of, in that window when it was legal. So ours is one of the 10,000 you know, first legal marriages in California. Wow. And and I'm not by nature a joiner. So I really, I'm just not by nature a joiner. Right. So really, <laughs> um, but I, sh I do think also, we, we, I think that especially the AIDS crisis really tore at the shred. Like, you know, now there was, there was a, a community, there were stores, there were places to go mostly bars. Um, so that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think the, the women's building was still very vibrant when I got here in 1981. But so I think it's become more private or personal. Like we actually spend most of our time in Truckee now, uh, which is up in the Sierra. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're not in the city as much. Um, and we have a group of friends up there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's gotten more private and personal for some good and for some bad, right? Like somewhat we've integrated and in other ways we've lost our political edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's know. funny. It's interesting you say that they lost a the political edge because the Castro, I haven't been there in a while, but when I was there probably like five or six years ago, it seemed very quiet. And mm -hmm. it just seemed like a lot of businesses that were there, like a lot of the bars have closed for financial reasons. And, you know, COVID kind of helped with that. But even before then, you know, it seemed like a lot of the, the lesbian bars were closing and they just weren't being financially supported. And I think, you know, as far as as we get older, because I'm in my mid 50s, as we get older, we kind of like come into our little cocoons and we just spend time with our you know the closest friends that we have our circle and you know not really going out to the bars or you know having that party atmosphere because you know bedtime's at 8 30 now you know <laughs> yeah you're getting to bed earlier <laughs> so it definitely has changed and evolved over the years it feels and and you can definitely feel that energy not as you know that that vibrant energy that I once felt in the Castro does just doesn't seem to be there. I think we uh, yeah I think uh, to the largest extent the gayest thing in the Castro now are those rainbow crossing walks they right. painted eighteenth and, <laughs> and the families and the strollers go across yes yeah. the families and the strollers. <laughs> right. uh, we have friends who uh, spend a lot of time in Providence down in Massachusetts and they say the same thing. Oh, it's, interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, just we've all moved. We moved, mm -hmm. not just us personally, but I mean, uh, we grew up and we moved places, mm -hmm. and that we aren't congregating like we used to. Which you know, you can't blame us, but it changes things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing your stories. It's it's really heartwarming to hear other people's experiences, and I, I love hearing other people's stories. Um, and one story that I'm also very intrigued in hearing about is the Stagecoach Greens and how that came to be. How did the idea of creating Stagecoach Greens first come up? Was it like one of those epiphanies that you were like in the shower or, you know, driving down the street? Well, it is kind of a funny story. Um, so... Um, so as I said, I spent 30 years in financial services. And as the last step in my career, I uh, tried to build a financial services uh, company for um, middle-class and, and uh, working-class people. Mm -hmm. It was not a successful endeavor. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good idea, but 
our funders pulled out. Nobody really, I don't think the industry really wanted to see it happen. Um, so it was disappointing, you know, and uh, it had been a noble experiment and I was really excited to take it on and just didn't work out. And so I decided that was it. I wasn't going to work. We moved our kids to San Francisco, back to San Francisco, because we really wanted them to spend their teenage years in the city. We just wanted that experience for them. So we moved to Mission Bay in San Francisco, a neighborhood we love. And uh, our three kids began going to high school here and became city kids. And that was exciting. And it was a lot of work. It really took two of us mm. to do that and uh, to transition at that whole infrastructure. And, um, but then they graduated and started to live their lives and we went were, to college, went to college <laughs> and, you know, we were, uh, we had time and we were sitting up in Truckee where we spent a lot of time and we were having, um, ice cream with a friend of ours. And I said, you know what this ice cream stand needs is a miniature golf course. It would be because that's what I'd seen growing up in New England. I'd loved miniature golf. And I thought, you know, if you're sitting outside in a rural place in the summer eating ice cream, you ought to be going miniature golfing. Right. And my friend said, you mean on that empty lot across the street? And we looked over and there was an empty lot for sale across the street. So we bought it. And we planned to build miniature golf on it. And we started to think about how to do it a little differently. We didn't want to pour concrete all over mm. that. Just we wanted to do things. So we started to think about how to do it differently. And Jen has a stagecraft background. Okay. And um, she has a theater degree. And I said, you know, this thing you did in college, I think that's how we have to think about it's it. It's time to rear its head again and bring it to yeah. life, right? <laughs> you mentioned something, yeah. uh, you know. And um, so we started and we started, I really love history and I love California. And I feel grateful for everything that Northern California has been in my life. The minute I got here, I thought this is home. So I wanted to, to have it be about that. So we're working on it, kind of coming up with ideas. And then we came back to Mission Bay and a guy named Carlos Muelas, who is the, uh, Muela, who is the, excuse me, Muela, who is like the food truck king mm -hmm. of uh, San Francisco. We, I read in the community notes that he was getting miniature golf approved for Mission Bay. Oh. And I was so surprised. And I said, so I called the parks department here in Mission Bay and I said, who's this guy? And they said, well, we can introduce you. And I called them and I said, you're building miniature golf. We're building miniature golf. We should talk. What's your plan? And he said, oh, I, I haven't got a plan. I'm just getting it approved. Then I'm going to figure out what to do. Hmm. So that was it. We were just like, oh, we gotta, we gotta, you know, work with him. And I will say we realized that our plan needed to be in San Francisco, that we couldn't have gotten the kind of uh, audience and uh, uptake in Truckee that we could get here. Right. And um, Carlos is amazing and he's been great to work with. And uh, so we just sat at our dining room table and somebody called it a love letter to San Francisco. And I think that's true. We just thought through what are the stories that have meant so much to us? What is, we, our theme is boom and bust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we really wanted to tell that story of the exciting things that explode here in San Francisco and then end. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Well, you have like the Transamerica building as one of the holes, um, but with, with boxing gloves. I mean, it's just very creative twists on the different holes. Um, you have one that has like a casket that opens with a skeleton. I mean, so yeah. it's very interactive. I mean, I think one of the, later holes you have one that you use a, a pool cue to mm -hmm. to do that hole which you know has the the invent i think that's the like the innovative inventive hole right with the the light bulb that's, and that's yeah. my favorite hole mm -hmm. that's my favorite hole because uh, yeah. it's my technology hole you know it's, yeah. it's about yeah no that's exactly we wanted to tell these stories but we wanted and we we um had it was built by a company that does stagecraft so it's not your we didn't use your typical you know windmill spinning around not that you know but we really wanted it to feel like a story you were part of when you're playing yeah 
Um, and you totally feel that. And you have little plaques at each to kind of describe kind of a story that pertains to the whole, you know, because you have like the bar saloon and, you know, and you have very awesome photo ops around the whole course because, you know, people do the selfies. I, you know, I follow you guys on Instagram and you see how people are enjoying themselves with these photo ops and the, the different designs that you have on the course. You know, rarely in life does something that you do actually turn out the way you envision, mm -hmm. um, I have to say. And I kind of am amazed at how this, you know, it's it's what we always hoped was the people who came would take over the story, you know, mm -hmm. or do their part of it. And we've really seen that. Have you have you played a whole, I think it's whole seven, um, the gold hole. It's got like a mm -hmm. orc. The picture on that wayfinder, that's what we call the little, uh, the picture on that wayfinder our son took. So oh, awesome. there's a lot of personal touches on the course where we, you know, our kids got involved and uh, Jan hand drew the whole first, all, we had an art, we ultimately hired an artist friend in San Diego to uh, really elaborate, but Jan drew all the original holes. Mm. Did you talk about the portability of it? Well, no, not really. Like, I'm not sure really like is. What do you mean by portability? Like, like you can pick it up and put it on a truck and... Well, that was originally... speaking, yes. Yeah, yeah. Technically. And that was the original idea when we back started in Truckee, because, of course, it snows a lot in Truckee, so we thought, well, we'll have portable holes, and then we can store them in the winter mm -hmm. and uh, use the land for other things, like a pumpkin patch or ice skating or snow play or something. So that was the original, but none of that, none of that, none of that out. worked out. Yeah. No, no, it was not feasible. And so the holes were made offsite and installed at our location in Mission Bay. Um, but I would not say they are really portable now. Mm. They, you know, we have the concrete around them. And yeah, I would, I wouldn't move those holes. I, no, it would be. <laughs> They could be difficult. swapped out and they might they be could someday. be swapped out. Yes. Uh, they right. could be that could happen. Yeah. I would not rule out the possibility that someday we'll right. uh recreate a few holes, but uh we were kind of thinking that way and then COVID hit and so sure. we put the boots on that and uh you know yeah. But yeah. it'll be four years in August. Yeah, August 2018. I remember seeing, I don't know if it was on social media, even before you you actually opened, I saw something and I'm like, oh my God, I need to like go, the, I need to go there the first weekend or the first week that they're open <laughs> because of, you know, it was like, I've always, in Texas, I don't know if it's still open, but in San Antonio, when I went to visit my sister, they have this like ultimate golf, mini golf, where it had like sand pits and water holes and, you know, mm -hmm. rocks for just the mini golf. So to me, that was pretty cool too. So that's, why I was like very excited about Stagecoach Greens because it's like this is not your usual mini golf course like like Esther was saying with the the windmills and the you know that sort of thing so I was really excited to to hear about that we did a lot of research. We played a lot of miniature golf courses. I have thousands of miniature golf pictures on my phone, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, including Disney. We went to mm. Orlando and played there because they have two amazing courses. But I've never seen anybody do it the way we did it or get it into 10,000 square feet. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, this is not a sprawling, you know, yeah. piece of land. Most of these great courses are a half an acre. Yeah. And we just, this is San Francisco. We all live in small apartments and we have a small miniature golf course. Right. Uh, we use uh, special balls that we sourced from China that are low bounce um, oh. because, uh, you know, we started with regular ones and they just bounced all over the course. <laughs> the first week was crazy. Oh <laughs> so there's been a lot of learnings. I didn't even and, know they had low bounce balls. That's pretty interesting. We're Googling low bounce. <laughs> we also really wanted to be innovative around um, accessibility. Uh, accessibility. For partly, you know, we get a lot of people who, who benefit from an accessible course and miniature golf legally is only required to be like, you only have to have like half your holes accessible. There's all these mm. weird 
schools. And we were like, no, we want 100% accessibility. And so we were, we designed a door system that um, you can open the perimeter of the course, which you couldn't do if you poured concrete. That oh, that's was, awesome. And that, that meant a lot to us. Right. So yeah. if you're in a wheelchair or have mobility issues, you don't have to step over the little borders that hold the balls in. Oh, awesome. Our daughter, who's a marketing major in college, has to, had to do a project where she designed a product, you know, kind of thing marketing majors do. She's trying to get out of marketing, but she's stuck in it for now. But um, <laughs> so she would want me to she would want me to point that out. But um, she knew from working at the course that while we could get accessible putters for adults, it was hard to find a, a one designed specifically for children. Mm-hmm. And so that's her project. She's designing an accessible miniature golf putter for children. Awesome. <laughs> that was kind of cool. That is very cool. That is very cool. So when you kind of came up with this idea where people kind of look at you, looking at you a little sideways, like, are you crazy to do this in San Francisco? Yes. Yes. Um, I would say the bulk of people thought it was an insane idea. Totally. <laughs> Um, and and ask questions like why are you doing this mm-hmm. and um you know uh we were pretty nervous too mm-hmm. the, we we were supposed to open in um may yeah in spring of 2018 2018 and you know delays how that things go well may of 2018 was the windiest month in san francisco mm-hmm. history the wind just tore across uh, Mission Bay on our site. And, you know, we're two months away from opening. We've done all the building. We've got the, uh, you know, Rachel who does our marketing and she's in place. Everything's all ready to go. And there's like a hurricane <laughs> um, going on every day. Yeah. And, you know, we wondered whether outdoor golf would really work in this city. Would it be too cold? Would it be too rainy? Would it be too rainy? Would it be too windy? Our daughter again said to us, well, mom, if people don't go outside in bad weather in San Francisco, they never go outside. Right, exactly. <laughs> and if you live in San Francisco, you should know to layer and you know be prepared for anything. People have been super. I mean, people have golfed, you know, in all sorts of crazy weather just because that's what San Franciscans do. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but it was, it, we weren't guaranteed, we were not sure of success. Yeah. Um, and here you time. are four years later. And just have you, do you keep track of the number of people that golf? We know how many tickets we've sold. Mm -hmm. And what we don't totally know is the number of like people do buyouts and they bring large groups. Mm. Um, But I, so I have to adjust the ticket number for that, but I think it's about 350,000 golfers. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And we lost a year for COVID. Right. So we, we definitely see 100,000 or more golfers a year. There is no miniature golf course in America, except maybe Disney, that um, has that kind of throughput. Yeah, uh, It's been even more fun. Uh, I don't know. I think it's been a good place for people to be outside mm-hmm. together during this these last two years. Absolutely. And, yeah. And I think we've been embraced by the city and the community loves us. And um, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, I think <laughs> that's exactly what San Francisco needed was that little shot in the arm of something outside that's active. But it was great. Everybody, you know, you you had your time, your tea times, you know, separated out so that there weren't very many people on the course and everyone was very respectful and playing along and it was still a lot of fun even with that so you know with the food trucks and the donuts oh my god those donuts are like to die for (laughs) (laughs) we smell them all day long (laughs) (laughs) and and we've kept that 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 spacing and the tea times and Mm -hmm. uh, we've we've found that some of the learnings for COVID is that you know it actually makes for a better experience for our customers our clientele to have that space and have that time that's yours to go through the course with your group and so we've kept that since uh, we like it makes it frankly easier for us to manage the course you know who's coming in when we can staff better and all those kinds of things so it's been a good and Carlos does a fabulous job of the food trucks we have to keep nodding to him Mm -hmm. he has been 
you know, Carlos also has been a god a godsend in terms of helping us learn how to deal with the city and all the challenges. We we weren't small. We had not run a small business. We we were, you know, corporate people. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot to learn. And he has been a huge. Uh, he's been huge through this all. So because right. remember, we're just mini golf. He does. That he does everything else, else. The bar and the food right. truck before it. Yeah. Well, I think it's unique just that people have to sign up for a tea time, right? You know, normally at a mini golf, you just show up and you play. So I think, you know, that scheduling a tea time, it's just like regular golf. That was Carlos's. That I will say was Carlos's idea. We should totally. Yeah, he told us he's a, golfer. he's a golfer. He told us right from the beginning we should have tea times, and I most of my career in te- in financial services was spent in technology, so I was able to call on people I'd worked with, and we built our own um, reservation system. So the the software that you use, it's all custom to our business, right. and. Um, that enabled us to really create the golfer experience rather than a reservation system experience. Right. But really, and that's been that's been kind of that was a fun yeah. part of the project. Yeah, it's a nice and, touch. Yeah, and we have uh, I mean, not only individuals or small groups can play, but purchasing a tea time or large groups or companies can do you know buy us where they buy the whole thing. But we created something in between which is uh, called, we call reserved access. And it's a lot of um, companies do that. Maybe they have 10 or 20 people or in a group or 30 people mm. in a work group when you want to do an outing or you know a team building experience. So it's called reserved access. So you buy the time and kind of like a traffic break on the highway, you know, mm. where the CHP. So we stop it in, in front and behind and you get a block of time that's just yours. So your group or 10, 20 or 30 people can all play the course together. And there's an additional fee for that, but we call it reserved access. Okay. So that that way there's some some flexibility. But we don't have to shut the whole course down. Right. While we love the buyouts, we hate to shut the course down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Don't want to turn anybody away. So I'd love to hear more about the family house and braid mission that you're both part of. And you actually are co founders of the braid mission. Is that correct? So I'll make a big distinction between okay. the two. Family House is across the street from the course, and we're huge supporters, but we're not really in any way personally responsible or involved. But Braid is really our thing. When we came to San Francisco, actually before mini golf, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we have two um, uh, friends who are Episcopal priests, and we, we've been involved in supporting foster youth for years Uh, and two of our children are adopted out of the system in san diego we were foster parents yeah and um we are supporters at cal state san marcos when we were in san diego which is a cal state near san diego we were supporters of the creation of a innovative program for former foster youth uh to in college and we were big supporters of that but when we came here our two friends uh said to us we feel called to move to the Bay Area with you and set up a mentoring program for foster youth in the Bay Area. And uh, we said, yes, let's do that. And they work tirelessly. It's their full-time job. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they work tirelessly. Right from the beginning, we spent a couple of years researching we knew a lot about foster youth, but we needed to understand the San Francisco environment and we needed to understand mentoring. We spent a lot of time with them researching that. And pretty quickly in the process, they came up with the model. We have what I would call a high touch model. This is not a get a lot of kids through program. This is a have an in-depth relationship with kids that we can help. They came up with a model right away that every youth needs three mentors. Um, and we picked three for this reason. Foster youth, it's hard being in foster care. There's always that initial wounding that comes from being removed from your home. Um, it's it's brutal on children. And then they are, they so many people fail them in their lives. Yeah. You know, they move so often, so many adults fail them, so many mentors come and go. Um, social workers, social come, workers and go. come and go yeah. schools. Yeah. They, they often change schools every six months. Wow. So 
teachers come and go. They just don't have stable relationships. They can't, they don't, they don't have adults who stick by them. So we wanted to build a program where even if one mentor had to move to another city or leave, you still, or in one case, we actually had a mentor die. Um, That was hard, but there were two other mentors there to help that child grieve through the process and, and, and transform their experience of an adult leaving them from, I don't know what happened now I'm alone to look, there are adults who are going to help me. And so every, every youth has three mentors. We are usually open to receiving children as young as nine. And we don't cut you off at any point. We have youth who are now adults and who still have ongoing relationships with their mentors. It does take foster youth sometimes a little longer to in to, to launch into adulthood because they haven't had the support that mm-hmm. that they're that all children should have mm-hmm. uh, so we wanted to establish a program that we could really do what we knew was best for the kids and we didn't have to answer to metrics i mean we've got good stories and we've got good metrics but that's not the point sure. the point is to be a presence in the life of these um, young people. So when we had the golf course idea, we thought, well, this is perfect. We'll build this golf course. If it's successful, we'll have profits and we'll use those profits to support the mentoring program. Amazing. And that's that's where we are. That's great that they have three mentors. You know, everybody has a different experience. So to have three different people be there to support them and so they can depend on more than one person and, and gain that trust and, and they have a, a rule that um at least two mentors uh, particularly i mean if if it's uh you know a personal visit other than zoom that two of the mentors have to be there mm-hmm. at all times so there's always at least two and then that way if one mentor has to work or can't be there or whatever there's the other two right. and then also each uh, mentor group has a facilitator because it's hard for the mentors as well. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, we can tell you some horrific stories and the mentors have a facilitator to work with to help them. And then the facilitators work with Chris and Rebecca, who are the co-founders of the organization with us. And the facilitators, in addition to being what we call pastoral, helping the mentors deal with the emotion of seeing the lives of these mm-hmm. children, they also help the mentors negotiate the complex uh, family arrangements, you know, it's, you'd think it's so simple. You schedule to see a kid Saturday at 10. Well, the, the adults who care for these children are not necessarily really good at getting, at meeting those commitments. Right. So they change things on the child. And then all of a sudden, you know, that doesn't happen. So it takes a the facilitator works with the foster parents, with the foster system, with the schools when it's needed, with the social worker, with the social worker and um, to make the so that the mentors can really put their heart and soul into the kids. And it's not like a most of our mentors themselves are pretty young. Mm-hmm. They're young adults in the city. And um, we uh, have had just, we've actually had, I think, over 500 mentors <laughs> complete our training. Wow. And we have uh, 250 currently, um, you know, uh, in the system, in the volunteers, total volunteers, you know, because not everyone, once you find out what's involved, it's not for everyone. We yeah. understand. Yeah. It's a big commitment. And, you know, um, and so uh, we all we try to put a lot into helping the mentors so that they because they're we're really asking a lot of them. And they're really lovely people. I mean, well, it sounds uh, like there's support from the top down and to build that foundation for the youth. And, uh, you know, it sounds like it does take a village to, you know, <laughs> help help kids and, you know, come up through the the system and it just feels like from what you're describing it feels like this that particular experience for the kids is a lot more loving and supportive we have one mentor who is who left to go to medical school in dartmouth but every month she joins a zoom call with her uh with her youth and her new team and you know so it's a very dedicated group you have yeah. Very yeah. And there, yeah, so we're served almost 60 youth 
so far mm-hmm. since its inception. And uh, so, so Chris and Rebecca, the co-founders, are are Episcopal priests. Mm-hmm. So they're trained, and you know, we all we're in partnership with the Diocese of California. Yeah. But, but so, of course, the program's not at all religious. You sure, know, yeah, sure. most no. most of our mentors aren't. You don't. There's no. We're yeah. not. You just have that support from that community. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That structure. Yeah. yeah, and that structure. We've also gotten great support from some of these science-related hmm. businesses. So, for example, we have one youth who, when we first brought him in the program, he hardly ever went to school. He was, uh, you know, tr- he was struggling with truancy. And um, one of our mentors, on their own initiative, got him an internship at a UCSF lab. Wow. And now he is you know, decided he's going to be a researcher and he goes to school all the time and he's, and we're working with Berkeley labs to try to build a a pipeline program for mentorship. And a lot of this has come from the mentors because that's what they know how to do. They know people, they know the world and they have helped to introduce just what people do for each other. Yeah. And it seems like with kids, it's like if they're given an opportunity like that, they'll take it you know they if they're encouraged to do something like that that youth it's like that's all they need to thrive and to succeed it's like right. they just need that one person to you know give them quote unquote permission to take that right. opportunity and just go with it yeah it's actually amazing how resilient children are because mm-hmm. i mean honestly i'm practically in tears just thinking about some of them but if i told you their life story we'd just all be crying yeah I mean, yeah think you survive that but they do and yeah, yeah. they're not bad kids they've been they're victims they've been failed by they, right. so many people so many times and they need help but that help can really make a huge difference yeah absolutely and uh, so every time you go at Stagecoach Greens, you are helping these children. <laughs> That's, you well, know. I'm going to go more often now then and uh, <laughs> yeah. do my part <laughs> and have fun doing it. <laughs> That's right. It's fun and it's good. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here and taking the time and sharing your stories and experiences. I'm just like, my heart is warm right now. Um, just talking with you. And if you're out there listening, definitely check out Stagecoach Greens. If you're in the city visiting or live, definitely check them out. Check out Braid Mission and all of their work that they're doing for that. And uh, thank you again for being on the show. And Kathy, we uh, thank you for all your support of Stagecoach Greens. We really appreciate it. And I guess to your audience, thank you. Um, We are really appreciative of the support and love the city of San Francisco has given us. So it means a lot to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast, an independent podcast. Email us at womenwhosarcast at yahoo.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Women Who Sarcast. Get your copy of Women Who Podcast magazine today. Visit womenwhopodcastmag.com to subscribe. Show music provided by Mike Imbasiani. <laughs>